Well, if you've been here, you know that we're working our way through the Gospel of John. We began looking at Jesus' trial, the first part of Jesus' trial, that is the, the trial that began with the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court. What we see is that Jesus is, in fact, humanly speaking, at this point, all alone. He has been betrayed by Judas, he's been denied by Peter, and he's been abandoned by all of his closest companions. And so now, as we continue looking at the trial, we move to what is now the, the Gentile uh, section, if you will, of the trial, the, the trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Today's passage is in uh, John chapter 18, beginning at verse 28. If you have a Bible with you, as every week, I encourage you again to open it up to that passage and follow along as I read and then keep it open as I preach uh, because I'll be looking at specific verses and, and words. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, you can find a Bible in the row in front of you underneath and you'll find our passage in that Bible on pages 904 and 905. John chapter 18, beginning at verse 28. <clears throat> says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. We see this man enter into the picture named Pilate. Pilate. He is, as uh, John calls him here, the governor. They take Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. 
Now, Pontius Pilate was given that position of governor or uh, what is also called a prefect. He is given that position in AD 26 by Emperor Tiberius, who will be the emperor, obviously, when Jesus is crucified. Augustus was the emperor when Jesus was born. Pilate's historicity, other than being mentioned in Scripture and also being mentioned in some other uh, historical works, was somewhat in doubt, not by Christians who trust the Bible, but by historians, because there had been no archaeological finds to attest to Pilate's uh, even being around. And some uh, people actually questioned that he existed until 1961, when on the coast uh, of Caesarea Maritima, they, uh, an archaeologist unearthed a limestone inscription that actually said on it, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, to Tiberius Caesar, which actually then confirmed, again, not for Christians who already knew that Scripture does not err, but for historians who now have their archaeological piece of evidence that not only did Pontius Pilate exist, that he existed during the time of Tiberius, and that he was the prefect. Uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, had labeled Pontius Pilate a procurator, which is something other than a prefect. Uh, so then you had the Bible's word against Josephus's word. Well, when this limestone inscription was found, he was in fact called the prefect, uh, thus uh, solidifying what John in fact says. Now, Judea, when I was uh, in a a Roman history course as an undergrad, my Roman history professor said that Judea was, quote, the armpit of the Roman Empire. So that means that Pontius Pilate was not given a very enviable position, even though he was made prefect. He was made prefect of what no one wanted to be prefect of. And so Pilate was not really a very pleasant man. He was known for his brutality. In fact, we find this in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. It says, uh, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate was a man who did not like his position. He had made a lot of bad decisions, and he was brutal. And this was the man now that Jesus, having already gone through a very unjust and illegal trial, is now being led to. Uh, to see whether or not he is guilty, in fact. Now, why are they taking Jesus to Pilate? Why even involve him? Well, we see here by what they say in verse 31, when Pilate says, look, why don't you go judge him by your own law? The Jews reply, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, which is true. Historically speaking, right before this time, the Romans had stripped away from the Sanhedrin the ability to execute the death penalty, putting it all in the hands of the Roman governor. And so that's what they're saying. They, they're bringing Jesus to Pilate because, as I mentioned, they have already decided even before the trial that they want Jesus dead. It wasn't a fair trial. They already knew they wanted to kill him. And so this is uh, the end game here. And they're hoping that Pilate will go along with their death sentence. Now, John says it was early morning. We know that the Sanhedrin uh, did their trial essentially at night, which was illegal, uh, early, early in the morning, two or three in the morning. This is probably five or six in the morning, scholars think. 
So in mere hours, Jesus will be crucified. They take Jesus to the governor's headquarters. In Greek, that word is the praetorium. It's not where Pilate stayed all the time. Pilate, generally speaking, resided in Caesarea, but because this was the time of the Passover, he was there in Jerusalem uh, presiding over the affairs since there were huge crowds of people there. And most likely the praetorium, we don't know exactly where that is, it was probably Herod's uh, palace where King Herod used to live because of its lavishness. Now notice what John says here. He says something interesting. They themselves, meaning these Jewish religious leaders, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now a couple of things to note here. One is what is uh, John saying here when he says, eat the Passover? Because from what we understand, they've already eaten the Passover meal. Uh, in fact, we, if you read the synoptics, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, when, when they describe that last supper, which has already happened prior to this, uh, it was the Passover meal that they had together. And John doesn't describe uh, that last supper in the same way, but, but we take it from what he does include that that upper room discourse where he washed the disciples' feet and, and then talked about uh, the betrayal and all that was that same night the night of the Last Supper or the Passover. So in that case, you ask yourself, well, well what, what, does he, what is he talking about here? Why, why do they want to still eat the Passover if the Passover has already happened? Well, what John is talking about is he's referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is going to continue for seven more days after the Passover meal, that initial meal, ends. That's what these guys want to celebrate. They want to go on and be able to celebrate the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Historically speaking, we know that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was referred to simply as the Passover. They would refer to the whole thing as the Passover. In fact, you find that in Scripture. Luke 22.1, it says, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, comma, which is called the Passover. So we know that anyway. So that's, this is what John's talking about. These guys want to be able to celebrate for seven days this Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they don't want to defile themselves. Well, what is John talking about here? What he, what he means here is that there was no law in the Old Testament that Jewish people could not enter the house of a Gentile, but as is the case, and as we find in the New Testament, uh, there were laws added to God's law, what, what we call fencing the law. Uh, we find that with, with, with Sabbath laws, for instance, th that these Jewish uh, religious leaders enacted to, to try to keep people from breaking the Sabbath. Well, this was another one of those. This was a law that was man-made. It wasn't part of God's law. And apparently, according to this law, a Jew could enter a Gentile resident's courtyard as long as you could see the sky, that was okay. But if you entered a Gentile's house with a roof on it, then you would be defiled. And that defilement would last for seven days, after which you could then be cleansed of this defilement. And so that's why they don't want to enter, because they want to be clean so that they're not defiled for seven days so that they could have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this is the first bit of huge irony that we find 
in this account. Because think of the irony that here are the most scrupulously religious men in all of Israel, and they are leading a completely innocent man to his death via a completely unjust and illegal trial, and yet they don't want to enter Pilate's house, uh, this governor's headquarters for fear that they will be in, in, in enact some kind of ritual impurity. And why? So that they can be free to enjoy the Passover meal. What you see here is exactly what Jesus kept accusing these men of. Jesus said things like this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup, and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Is it any wonder these guys wanted him dead? He was calling them out on their hypocrisy, but it was nothing new. God had been accusing Israel of the same kind of hypocrisy all throughout the Old Testament. Amos chapter 5, as, as God would send his prophets to Israel, what did he say? God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God was calling them hypocrites long before God incarnate called them hypocrites. John Calvin, who I don't often quote, but found this quote to be really good regarding this. John Calvin says this, they want to keep themselves pure in order to eat the Passover properly, but they think uncleanness is restricted to the governor's house, and they do not hesitate to put an innocent person to death, witnessed by heaven and earth. In short, they observe the shadow of a Passover with feigned and false reverence, and yet not only do they violate the true Passover, but try as far as they can to overwhelm it in eternal ruin. They do not stop to think that they carry more pollution within themselves than they can contract from entering any place, however profane. And that's true for people today. As I mentioned a couple of, of, of sermons ago, you can grow up in a church, you can go through all of the religious outward things and not be saved. You can be very outwardly religious and miss the point of everything. I remember listening to a message that Tim Keller gave to uh, this, and I didn't hear this when I was graduating from seminary, although he was giving it to seminary grads. Uh, I heard it just last year because a, a fellow pastor passed it on to me, but, but Tim Keller said, look, uh, in the pastorate, um, you have to at least appear to be holy. The, the pastor is the one job, you know, you can be a car salesman and come in the next day and talk about all of your illicit uh, affairs from the night before and nobody's gonna care as long as you sell cars. You can't do that as a pastor. 
So Tim Keller said, as a pastor, you either have to be holy or you have to act like you're holy. You don't have any other option. And he told a story of a pastor who actually uh, preached for a long time while actively in an affair. And, 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 and Tim Keller asked the man, and once, once it came out uh, that he was having an affair, how could you do that? How could you go on like that and continue to preach? And the guy said, well, because every Sunday that I preached, I got positive feedback on my sermon. So I assumed that God was still using me and that what I was doing wasn't all that bad. You see how he deceived himself greatly. And these men have done the same thing. How can they do this? How can they do all of these illegal things and willingly send a man to his death who is innocent and lie about him and yet at the same time care enough to not be ritually impure so they can enjoy the Passover feast? So Pilate acquiescing to them now we know that historically speaking Pilate was kind of on skating on thin ice with his Roman superiors he had made some bad decisions he had violently and brutally stopped some some Jewish uprisings in the past and and there was a lot of just kind of grumbling and and dissatisfaction going on in Judea so he already wasn't governing very well and I'm assuming that he, he thought look this is so stupid that these guys don't want to come in to talk to me. But whatever, I'll go, I'll give in to their stupid religious beliefs, and I'll go out and see them. I don't want it to cause any problems. So Pilate goes outside. He goes out, and you can see here that unlike the Sanhedrin, Pilate, as despicable as he is, at least follows proper judicial proceedings. He comes out and he asks them, the accusers first, what accusation do you bring against this man? Proper ju Roman jurisprudence said, uh, said that you would make the prosecutors state their case first. Something, again, the Sanhedrin didn't even have as, as, as witnesses. Now, notice their answer. They really don't, don't have one. I mean, their answer, at least initially, is, take our word for it, he's evil. That, they have no, they don't give him anything. He says, Why, what accusation? Well, if he wasn't doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him here. So can you please just execute him? The irony, again, this passage is full of irony, is that in reality, Jesus has committed no evil. He's never once sinned in his life, and these men who are bringing him here, accusing him of evil, have done nothing but evil against him in the last few hours. Now, they know that they can't really give Pilate their real reason for wanting Jesus dead. Their real reason is that they believe he's committed blasphemy. And Jesus has claimed to be God many, many times. He claimed to be God again in their sham trial. But if they go to Pilate and say, this man claims to be Yahweh, and so he's committed blasphemy, and so he deserves to die, Pilate's going to say, get out of here with this. You know, that's your problem. I don't care about some religious squabble you have they know they can't tell him that so i think at first they just try to get away with look he's been doing a lot of bad stuff well Pilate just replies to them look if you guys are going to speak in generalities then quit wasting my time take him yourselves and judge him by your own law he knows why they've brought him here he doesn't like the jews as we'll see Pilate, no friend of theirs he's probably tired doesn't want to be up at five in the morning and their reply is 
but we want him dead. And it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So now Pilate knows, they probably knew already, that they want this man to be put to death, and yet they don't give any real, real reason for it. Now, Pilate probably doesn't want to deal with the case. Again, historians think that this is Pilate's kind of debating here about what to do, probably isn't motivated as much about being kind to Jesus or some sense of justice, but, but probably motivated more because he wants to stick it to the Jewish religious leaders. So he puts them through the, the ringer here. So they end up when they realize they're not getting any, anywhere with this sort of generality, they end up portraying Jesus as a political threat. They end up portraying Jesus as an insurrectionist. They end up portraying Jesus as something that Pilate can't ignore. Because if they bring to Pilate what they do in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, which is this, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now you see, now Pilate's put in a sticky situation. Because if he ignores this, and sends them away and says, you deal with it, now he knows that that message can get back to his superior. That he knew that there could have been some guy inciting an insurrection, and he did nothing about it. So now Pilate's stuck. He has to enter in to this trial. John, the author, then throws in something rather amazing in verse 32. He says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Once again, John speaks of Jesus the way that other New Testament writers speak of Old Testament prophets. This was to fulfill the word. Jesus had spoken about his death earlier in John chapter 12. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John even said there in, in John chapter 12, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. But, er, but later on, when, when they get closer to Jerusalem... <clears throat> in Mark chapter 10, it says when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid, and, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to them. And listen to what Jesus said. He said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They're going to condemn him to death. They're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles, and then they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. That is not some vague prediction. Jesus gives exactly point by point what is about to happen to him before it happens. You see, just when you think as a reader that everything is falling apart, just when you think that perhaps Jesus' best laid plans have come to naught and that evil has won, John reminds us again that everything that is happening is actually according to God's sovereign and perfect plan. Everything is unfolding exactly as it should. Jesus has to be crucified. He has to be crucified exactly as it is playing out in history so that God's larger plan of redemption can be fulfilled. 
And yet, notice all of the individual players here. Judas and Caiaphas and Pilate and the soldiers, all of them are freely choosing to do and to act as they will according to their own sinful hearts. In fact, Peter says this in Acts chapter 2 when he preaches at Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen to how he describes it, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says both things were going on at the same time. You see, Christian, it is so important. It is so important for us to remember, and I think this is why John continually brings us back to this. It's so important to remember as we read through these accounts of the crucifixion that everything that goes on here is fulfilling God's long game, is fulfilling his plan of redemption. I don't think they could see it. I don't think that it's, I'm pretty sure I couldn't see it. Had I been there that night, and had I seen everything that, that unfolded, if I was one of his disciples, it would have looked like everything was crashing down. That all of God's best laid plans were ruined. That Satan had won. So what John continuously reminds us all throughout this is that Jesus really is in control. All the way back at the beginning of his ministry, three years earlier when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, what did he say? He said, look, Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, this must happen. It must happen this way so that people will be given eternal life. Jesus was born to die. That was his mission. And Jesus went to the cross and and suffered all of those things, the betrayal, the denial, the spitting, the whipping, the crucifixion, for a larger grand purpose, and that was to bring you, Christian, into his kingdom by saving you from your sins. And furthermore, we need to remember this. We need to remember that everything that happens in this world right now, everything that is happening in your life right now is all unfolding according to God's sovereign and definite plan for this world, for history, and for your life. If God can take the worst thing that ever happened in human history which is the crucifixion of the sinless Lord of glory, then he can take and use it for his grand purposes, then he can take anything in this world and use it for his greater good. Calvin writes this, if we want to profit from the story of Christ's death, the main thing is to think about God's eternal purpose. The Son of God is put before a tribunal of mortal man, If we think this is done by human will and do not raise our eyes to God, our faith will necessarily be put to shame and defeated. So let us learn in each part of this narrative to turn our eyes to God as the author of our redemption. So Pilate now speaks to Jesus alone. 
He's now spoken to the Jews. He goes back inside. There are no longer any crowds, no longer anyone countering anything that's going to be said. It's, it's Pilate and Jesus alone. And Pilate calls Jesus to himself, and he asks him a question. Are you the king of the Jews? I think Pilate is trying to get Jesus' answer here. Do you consider yourself to be an insurrectionist? Do you consider yourself to be the kind of person that these people are accusing you of? Because again, I don't think Pilate thinks he is. You can see the you emphasized in in the original Greek here. It's, It's almost like he's saying, are you really this king of the Jews, you, that they're talking about? Because I don't think he looked like much of anything. Think of how easily, how easily in this private setting, if Jesus really wanted to get out of this, he could have. Jesus knows what Pilate is thinking. He knows what everyone's thinking. Jesus knows that Pilate probably doesn't even want to deal with this, certainly doesn't really think this man has any kind of threat How easily Jesus, in the quiet of that room, without any accusers around, could have said, no, I don't. Those men are liars. They've brought me here. They've lied about me. I do not consider myself a king in any stretch of the imagination the way that they have portrayed me. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I have said repeatedly, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's. I'm not trying to stop people from giving their taxes. No. That's all he had to say in order to get out of this. And yet he doesn't. Because when he stood up that day, mere moments ago in the garden, and said, nevertheless, your will be done, he was now committed to the cross. Jesus gives another answer. Not a lie. He says, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Notice here that Jesus has suddenly become the questioner. It's almost as if he's now putting Pilate on some kind of stand. Pilate, I'm sure, was probably taken aback by this. Jesus is saying, he's asking for clarification. I think if Jesus answers a simple, yes, I am a king, he's going to be deceptive because he's not the kind of king as they have described. So he says, look, are you inquiring yourself about the nature of my kingship? Or are you imputing to me what they have just described and asking me to agree with it? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, what does Pilate say? Pilate answers, seemingly exasperatingly, am I a Jew? What? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate seems annoyed here. He probably has more work to be done later that day. He just wants to be over with this. Little did he know, as he was talking to this man, that he was presiding over the greatest event in all of human history. Pilate asks him, what have you done? Again, Jesus could have answered, I've done nothing. These are trumped up charges. Why don't you let me go? Instead, Jesus answers truthfully and fully. Jesus says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom 
is not from this world. Jesus now speaks to Pilate in a way that he would understand as a military man. Jesus says, I am a king, but I'm not a king in the way that they are portraying me. You understand, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's very important that we see what he says here. Because notice that Jesus does not say, my kingdom is not in this world. Jesus, in fact, came into the world to bring the kingdom of God with him. You remember what he said when he came on the scene. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' kingdom is very much in this world. What he says is that my kingdom is not of this world. What Jesus is referring to here is exactly what the prophet Daniel prophesied hundreds of years earlier that we read in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he saw this statue. And each part of the statue represented different kingdoms of this world. The last part representing the kingdom of Rome. He, didn't, he, he, he saw in this dream, the statue, he didn't even know what the parts of the statue meant. And in this dream, he saw this huge stone being cut out, cut out of a mountain and coming down and smashing all of the parts of this statue. Daniel interpreted the dream for him. Daniel, the prophet of God said to King Nebuchadnezzar, no wise men or enchanters or magicians or astrologers can show you, the king, the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And I'll tell you what it is, King Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the images of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, and as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image and broke it in pieces. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. What Daniel ends up telling King Nebuchadnezzar is that he essentially describes the rest of human history until the coming of Christ and, and all of the kingdoms that will follow. And interestingly, when he gets to Rome although he doesn't call it Rome, he says there's another kingdom that's going to come. It's going to be strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. This kingdom is going to crush everything that comes in its way. He says this, and in the days of those kings, the kings of Rome, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will the kingdom be left to another people, and it shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and this kingdom will stand forever. That's exactly what Jesus came to bring, the kingdom of heaven. And so when Jesus says, my kingdom, you understand, Pilate, is not of this world, he is saying, my kingdom is set up by God, not by man. My kingdom is indeed does conquer the world, but it does so by God's means and not by man's means. Notice, he, he even gives an example. He says, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have fought for me. You understand that, Pilate. You're not going to let 
me or anybody else come in here and try to take you without having your Roman guard stop us? Well, if my kingdom were of this world, that's what would have happened. My servants would have defended me. Interestingly, I'm not quite sure Jesus is talking about the apostles here. I mean, that's where your mind initially goes, that if my kingdom were of this world, then when I was going to be arrested, my men would have stepped up and defended me and kept me from being arrested. But I'm not quite sure that is who he's talking about, because what could the, even the 12, if every one of them was armed with swords, what could they have done against all the Roman soldiers that came? But what did Jesus say to Peter? When he said, look, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you realize that right now I could call down 12 legions of angels to defend me? Those were his servants. At any moment, Jesus could have, being the commander of the army of the Lord, called down 12 legions of angels. What army on earth could have stood against that? Jesus said, though, my kingdom is not of this world. I am meant to go to the cross. Had I called down my servants, I wouldn't have been delivered over to you. You can be assured of that. But I would have been spared from my mission, which ultimately leads to my kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but it is in this world. It's set up by God's methods. It is spread by God's methods. Christ's kingdom, think of it now, exists all over the world. It has conquered and has covered the entire globe long after Rome has been trampled into dust and is over. And Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail over my kingdom. Christian, you this morning are a part of the greatest kingdom in the history of the world. And you got into this kingdom not by force or coercion, but by the preaching of the gospel. And I think that's something that we have to come to grips with, is how Christ's kingdom is spread. Because I think we, especially as Americans, have, uh, have come so often to rely on political persuasion that I think we fail to understand that God's kingdom spreads oftentimes most dramatically in areas where the church seems its weakest in society. Right now in China, they are now estimating that there are well over 100 million Christians. And it's growing so rapidly that, from things I've read, uh, that even the Chinese communist leaders realize at this point they can do nothing to stop it. They realize that at some point, Christianity is going to win out in China, and all they can do is try to hold it at bay as long as they can. Jesus said that, I am a king. What Jesus is essentially telling Pilate is, you understand, Pilate, you have nothing to fear from my kingdom building, not in the way that you might think you fear it. So Pilate looks at him and says, so you are a king. Jesus says to him, you say that I am a king, which could almost read like avoidance. It could almost be read like Jesus saying, king is your word, not mine. But that's not what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus is rather saying something very definitively, something like, you are right in saying that I am a king. He's not denying this at all. But he says, you see, for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I came into the world. Notice there he's describing both sort of sides of the incarnation. For this purpose I was born of a woman, born like any other man. For this purpose I came into the world. I was the word that existed long before the world and I came into the world. He said, my purpose for coming here as a king is not to conquer with the sword, but to bear witness to the truth. It's amazing here how Jesus, though on trial, essentially speaks as judge. He has come into this world of darkness and lies, and Pilate is part of this system of the world's lies. And Jesus, truth incarnate, is now speaking to Pilate, a man lost in lies, and he said, I have come, you understand, Pilate, to bear witness to the truth. I have come to answer this world's biggest questions about who God is, about who humans are, about what the nature of reality is, about what the nature of history is, and about the nature of salvation. That's what I've come to bear witness about. And Jesus stares at Pilate and says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, Pilate. Again, like, just see how, how it's almost as if Pilate is now being lectured by this man who is on trial. And it's almost as if Jesus is giving this man lost in darkness a chance. He's staring at Pilate and he's saying, I am the truth. I can give you the answers to the questions about your life. And what does Pilate say? Pilate looks at this man and says, what is truth? Now, we don't know how he asks that. Did he ask it, as most people suspect, with sarcasm and skepticism? What is truth? And was he the first postmodern? Maybe, but who knows? Maybe Pilate asked it sincerely. Maybe he said, sadly and sincerely, what is truth? I'd like to know. The irony, the next irony is that he didn't stick around for the answer. He walked away. Think of the monumental mistake that Pilate makes there. He is looking in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and could have asked him at that moment for the answers to his biggest questions. And instead, he thought it more important to get on with the day's business. And so he walked away. Is that you today? Have you been confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been told by Christians that this book answers life's biggest and most important questions? And have you thought it inconsequential because you need to pursue your next degree? Because you need to pursue your next job so that you can get on with your homework, or so that you can get on with your promotion. You understand, you could be doing what Pilate just did, walking away from the one who is the truth. It wasn't too long after that Pilate was removed as governor because of his poor decision-making, and he ended up committing suicide. 
and facing the God who judged him for all eternity. I'm sure at that point he would have wished he would have asked Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate's words are so important. I conclude with this. Pilate goes out and says definitively to the crowd, I find no guilt in him. You see, in the end, Jesus was declared by many voices to be not guilty that day. And Pilate, knowing that he wants to just end this and release this man who he finds no guilt in, Roman law permitted two kinds of amnesty. One was an amnesty which was acquitting a prisoner before the trial even happened, and the other one was pardoning a prisoner after he is found guilty. Pilate was trying with the former, but he wanted to do it in a way that wouldn't cause an uproar. He knew that if he just released Jesus and said, I'm not even going to try this man, that he may have been facing problems with Caesar. So Pilate says, hey, look, you guys have a tradition that I know about, and that is that every Passover you like to release a prisoner. So Pilate chose the most despicable man he could think of. He chose a man that he figured would, there was no way the Jews would let that guy go. That they would rather choose to let Jesus go than this man. And Pilate, ironically, chose a true insurrectionist. He chose a man that our text says is a robber, but we find out as we read more about Barabbas that he was a political uh, operative, that, that he was a guy that was trying to do damage to Rome. He chose a man who was a murderer and a man who was a thief. He chose a guy that no one would ever want freed. And it totally backfired on him. Instead of allowing Jesus, a man who had never sinned once, to go free, the crowd condemned him so that the truly guilty one might go free. Brothers and sisters, you could hardly have a better picture of the gospel than what we see right here. Twice in this passage it is mentioned that it is the time of the Passover. What did the Passover celebrate? The Passover celebrated the release of Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. If you go back and you read that account, what you find is that the angel of death went through the entire land of Egypt and it killed the Egyptians and spared the Israelites. Interestingly, what we find is that the Israelites were spared not because they were inherently more righteous than the Egyptians, but solely because they had the blood of the spotless lamb spread over them. See, Jesus had no guilt in himself, but he died as though guilty to set the truly guilty free. He died, in other words, as the Lamb of God on Passover. Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus was King of this earth. He was King over Pilate. He was King over everyone who pronounced him guilty, but he was also the Passover lamb. And he went to the cross so that the Barabbases of this world, like you and I, Christian, could be set free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
once again reminding us of what our Lord did for us. That though He could have ended it at any time, in many ways, the spotless Lamb of God died for us. We pray that You would instill and impress that upon our hearts, that we may, in gratitude, honor You with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.